Okay, if you got your Bible with you today, turn with me to Genesis chapter 36. Uh, today we're going to continue our study in Genesis, um, but also want to make you aware that I, I may not be able to go through the rest of these chapters in Genesis as fast as we have been as we have been going. I have a, a whole lot going on, beginning a new ministry in Kansas, and I'm going to be pretty busy uh, just until I till I work out a new normal after things settle down. Uh, that being said, um, I, I know chapter 36 of Genesis is probably not going to be one of your favorites. It's probably not going to be uh, one of the most memorable chapters that you've ever read. Uh, most Bible studies or Sunday school lessons skip over it. Um, it is really, it's just a basic genealogical survey of Esau's lineage. Uh, usually when you read through Genesis, you know, read through this chapter, uh, you know, all the genealogies get skipped over. Uh, and so that's pretty much all chapter 36 is, is, is a genealogy. So it gets skipped over a lot. But I want you to see something really important in this chapter um, because even this is here for a reason. I know when we read, we we tend to skip over these things, but they are they are very important and they are necessary and they are part of God's word, these genealogies. Um, the, the line of Esau is here for a reason. Uh, first, first, just make sure that you understand that this genealogy is, is not really a departure or an aside from the story of Genesis. In fact, it, it's, it's really a return to the main story. Uh, uh, we have been, been looking at the life of Jacob, you know, through a microscope for, for quite some time now. Um, but if you, if you remember through our survey of Genesis, we have seen, uh, the book as a whole has been separated by what we called, uh, total statements. That's the Hebrew word, Toledoth. At each point before um, we looked at the main players of the book, uh, before we went into their lives, we saw a phrase in Genesis that says, these are the generations of you know, Noah. These are the generations of Abraham. These are the Toledoth statements. Uh, so, it may be easy, you know, to forget because we've spent a whole lot of time looking at Jacob's life up to this point. But we're actually returning now to the main storyline of Genesis. Uh, the distinction between the line of the promised seed of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And so we took a whole Genesis takes a long time to show us Jacob. And that's the promised line, the line of the seed. And now uh, it, it, uh, it it goes back to show us the uh, the, the line of, of Esau. Uh, but there's something else that we need to see here in this genealogy. Uh, the writer of Genesis is showing us as he recounts this lineage of Esau, he's showing us that that while the line of promise is going through all this turmoil, Jacob's life is uh, about to get really, really complicated with his sons and his circumstances. Uh, there's a whole lot to come. The line of Esau, who, you know, we know has done everything wrong and despised his birthright. And, you know, he is prospering in every conceivable way. That's what we're going to see in this chapter. So let's look at um, let's look at all this and then uh, we'll we'll talk about the significance for us uh, this genealogy of Esau it shows really it shows the the blessings that God has bestowed upon Esau so first let's look at uh, the fact that Esau is is blessed with um, the the first sections like family and prosperity but but verse one let's look at it verse one says let me just start with the text these are the generations of Esau and then the writer tells us that is Edom he gives make sure we understand Esau was also named Edom now 
Genesis, uh, this chapter, it's going to make sure that we are reminded that Esau is called Edom. Uh, this fact, um, it, it tells us really two things. First, it gives us a clue that the the nation that comes from Esau are the Edomites, you know, and they're going to they're going to feature prominently in the as the adversaries of Israel when they come out of Egypt. The Edomites did, uh, but also it reminds us that Esau despised his birthright. Uh, remember that he was given the name Edom when he chose Jacob's stew rather than his birthright. You remember that back in Genesis chapter twenty five, verse thirty. It's And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. So before Genesis describes all this wonderful prosperity and blessing of Esau and his descendants, he makes uh, the, the text makes sure to remind us that Esau despised his birthright. Esau rejected his spiritual blessings for you know, what he could taste, what he could feel right now. We saw that over and over again in Esau's life. So let's look at uh, Esau's immediate family. That's the first um, uh, eight verses or so are going to talk about his family. So verse two and three says, Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nabaioth. I assume I'm pronouncing those right. Uh, <clears throat> so these are his wives, right? Esau's wives, and we're um, we're also reminded that he took these wives from among the Canaanites. It takes special uh, uh, a special note of the fact that these wives are from the Canaanites, and of course, one was Ishmael's daughter. Uh, I'm not going to go back and relate all the history that we saw in Esau taking his wives. Uh, we went over that before when the events actually happened, uh, but uh, make sure we remember that that they are they're Canaanites is what the text is really focused on. Uh, it's seems to me like we're supposed to remember that Isaac and Rebekah disapproved of Esau's choice of wives. Remember that? Because they were Canaanites. They were they disapproved of his wives when he was trying to trying to be the man to please please daddy and he was doing everything wrong. I'm sure you remember that when we went through that. Um, if you remember the history of Esau Already, we're reminded that Esau wasn't the best example of making smart spiritual choices. Uh, but these wives that he took, they did deliver sons to Esau. Verse 4 and 5 says, And Adah bore Esau Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Aholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now, these are the names of the sons of Esau. Now, there are a lot of theories as to who these descendants of Esau turn out to be. You know, for example, some people maintain that uh, that the Eliphaz here is the same Eliphaz that is Job's friend and talked to Job in the book of Job. Uh, there's some that say that Korah here is the ancestor of the Korah that rebelled against Moses. Um, you know, of course, any of that's possible, but there's really no way for me to know. There's no way for us to know for sure. So I'm not going to go. I'm not going to spend a lot of time with the names of all these descendants that we're going to see throughout this chapter um for now just make sure that you're familiar with these names because we're going to see this same list two more times and that's what i find interesting in this text the point here isn't that esau you know the point here is that he didn't have any trouble having sons uh he was he was blessed with a family and a family that's that's going to grow but we also need to note that esau was pretty prosperous as well. In verse 6 through 8, it says, 
Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. And then it gives us a parenthetical note. Esau is Edom. Now, Esau like Jacob, had prospered greatly during the time that Jacob was with Laban. Uh, I mean, so much so that when Jacob returned, you know, they had both prospered so much that they couldn't stay in the same place together, which reminds us of Abraham and Lot in the land as well. Uh, the land wouldn't support all their servants and their herds. So so Esau moves permanently to Seir. Now, this raises a question in my mind, because if you remember, when Esau met Jacob on the way back from Laban's house, Esau returned to the land of Seir, and Jacob said that he would meet Esau there. So uh, why is he now at Isaac's house and just now moving to Seir because he and Jacob can't live together in the same land? Uh, the, the obvious answer is that Esau traveled back and forth from Seir to Isaac's house over the years that Jacob was gone, but there's a difference now in the last chapter, the very last few verses of the last chapter, Isaac has died. And so after Isaac dies, Esau finally moves moves permanently to make his home in the land of Seir. Now, you ought to pay close attention to the fact that Esau leaves the land of promise willingly. Uh, he isn't forced out or anything like that. He, he chooses to go. He leaves Jacob there as the sole inheritor of the land. In this, uh, we can see that Esau uh, still doesn't really care about his spiritual inheritance or the spiritual heritage of his family. Uh, he, he's still all about what he can see, what he can taste, what he can feel. He's, you know, he's prospering and growing as a family. So he moves out of the promised land because that seems to be what will benefit him the best. So in the first eight verses, we're given kind of, I don't know, the final setting, uh, the final settling place of Esau, if you will. Uh, he is going to fade from the story of Genesis after this. Uh, that's what happened to him. Now, the, the rest of the chapter uh, in Genesis 36 here is going to catalog the incredible blessings that Esau enjoyed through this genealogy, you know, as he lives in the land of Seir, his, his growth as a nation, his political rulership, his, the people that he conquered. So this is what I want you to see. So let's just start by looking at his descendants. Now, there are quite a few of them. Esau was, was definitely blessed with descendants. The same sons that we saw before are going to be mentioned again, along with some grandsons. So let's read verses 9 through 14, and I want you to follow along with me because you'll get, you'll get lost and tune me out if you're not looking at these names. It says, These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau. Esau, Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Timon, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Uh, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to 
Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nathan, Zerah, uh, Shema, and Mizah. Uh, these are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jeus, Jalam, and Korah. Now, I know that's a mouthful. <laughs> if you count all the sons there, there are 13 of them. Uh, now, when you say sons in Hebrew, it can mean descendants, grandsons, those kind of things. So anything like that. So there are 13 in this list, but one of them is from a concubine. Uh, uh, Amalek is from uh, Timnah, the, the concubine of, of Eliphaz. And so... Uh, from him come the Amalekites that are certainly the enemies of Israel and uh, we'll get to see them later on in the text there there are some people that subtract him uh, Amalek from being numbered among the descendants of Esau because he's born of a concubine and if that's the case then we have here a list of 12 descendants just like Jacob has uh, I don't know if that's actually proper I mean if the author of Genesis didn't want Amalek uh, included then he wouldn't have written his name. But the the fact is that there are 13 names uh, mentioned here. It shows us that he had, he had, uh, he had, well, he had one more than Jacob at this point. But the idea is that he is, he is blessed in the number of descendants that he has. He's more blessed than Jacob in the number of descendants that he has. And of course, you need to remember that Esau and his descendants are part of the promise that God made to Abraham when he told him that he would, you know, Abraham, you'll be the father of many nations and this is one of the nations so Esau has been exceptionally blessed by God in prospering and having all these descendants next we see that Esau didn't just have a big family, but his family became a great nation as well. In verses 15 through 19, the writer of Genesis gives us many of the same names that we saw in the list uh, previously. But this time, he shows us that they weren't just sons. These sons grew to become chiefs of the clan of uh, the clans of Edom. Uh, the family wasn't just big; they grew into powerful clans that made up a nation. I'm not going to read all the names through the rest of the, the rest of the chapter, but in verse 15 through 19, if you look at verse 15, it makes sure to tell us these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And then if you look in verse 19, it closes the section by saying these are the sons of Esau and these are their chiefs. Now, what's interesting, if you read verses 15 through 19 in its entirety, all of those names are exactly the same names that we just saw in the previous list. Every single one of them. Nothing new is added there. The only difference between this list here in verse 15 through 19 and the list previously is that he is focusing on the fact that these sons, these descendants became chiefs in the clans of the Edomites. That's really the only difference. Uh, all those names that we've seen before is because the focus of this section is different. It starts by and ends by telling us that these are the chiefs of the clans of the Edomites. Esau is blessed by God to grow into a powerful nation now and his sons and grandsons became the chiefs of that nation and so uh, what we're seeing here is the blessing of sons the blessing of prosperity and now the blessing of his descendants growing into this nation these clan chiefs so you have all of these blessings these national blessings family blessings prosperous blessings uh, next in the next section you see 
that the Edomites were also blessed to conquer. Uh, they were to conquer the people of Seir that lived in the, in the land that they settled. It seems really strange. If you're just reading through chapter 36, this is the genealogy of Esau. Why is this guy here in, in verse 20, his name is Seir. He in, lives in the land of Seir. Why is this guy, Seir, and his descendants listed? Look at this section. In verse 20, I'm not going to read the whole section, but it says, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. And then it goes on to list all of his children, all of his descendants, and some of the women that are uh, Esau's wives are, are in this list. And uh, it just seems strange that this whole thing is a genealogy of Esau. And then all of a sudden, from verse 20 to verse 30, there is a, a list of this guy named Seir the Horite, who lives uh, in the land of Seir. Uh, if you read through the whole section, you know, you see that, you know, I mentioned that you see the names of some of the women that uh, that Esau has in his list. But uh, why is the lineage lineage of Seir here? Uh, the reason is it is to tell us the people that Esau dispossessed from the land when he moved to the land of Seir. And I know this. I'm not just making this up in my mind. I know this from Deuteronomy chapter two, verse 12. It says the Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did in the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. So this is here for a reason. It shows us the lineage of uh, the people that were uh, dispossessed and destroyed by Esau when he moved and he and his nation moved to the land of Seir. It shows us that Esau was blessed with with victory over the people of the land in which he settled, uh, God gave him victory to conquer the people of the land, to to intermarry with them and to dispossess them. Uh, and so what you have is you see the blessings of Esau. He was prosperous. He had a big family. His family grew into a nation. His nation was allowed victory and conquer, uh, able to conquer the people of this land of Seir where he went. And next, we're going to be shown that Esau was also blessed with political power in the nation. Uh, now, I'm not going to read all these names either in verses 31 through 39, but I want you to pay close attention to verse 31. It says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And then it lists all the names, all the rulers of these kings. Uh, it says, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. And it makes sure we know that it was before any king reigned over the Israelites. Edom prospered and grew so quickly that they advanced to the point of kingship, to the point of monarch, monarchical rule before, long before Israel did. Remember that at this point, Israel has just now uh, gotten back into line with God's will. And the focus of the next few chapters is going to be on this great, famine and turmoil that happens in the land of promise, which eventually forces the Israelites to move to Egypt. Uh, you know, of course, you know what happens then. They become slaves. So during the suffering of God's people through all this tragedy, we see that Esau and the Edomites, they're doing just fine. Uh, in fact, if you look at the two peoples with, a wor with worldly eyes, what you would see is that the Edomites are, are really doing a whole lot better than the Israelites. 
in just about every conceivable way. Uh, they're more prosperous. They're growing faster. Their civilization is prospering faster. And they are experiencing nothing but victory in the land which they settled. And if we, we're going to keep reading in Genesis, you're going to see that that uh, Israel ends up being hungry. They end up with family strife. You know, they end up uh, thinking, you know, Israel thinks that his uh, Joseph dies and they send him to slavery. And there's a famine in the land that forces. I mean, they go through all of this tribulation. And Esau's over there, huh? I'm doing just fine. So, and then the last three verses of this chapter, verses 40 through 43, uh, show us that Esau and the Edomites are also blessed with land and territory. Uh, notice that the focus here is on their dwelling places. Verse 40 says, These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places. And then it says that in verse 43, at the very end of verse 43, it says, According to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. So, make sure that you understand what we're seeing. <clears throat> Edom has everything. The Edomites have everything you could possibly want. Esau and the Edomites are lacking absolutely nothing. I mean, you couldn't make up a more fairy tale-like story about uh, the birth and the prospering of a nation than this. Everything's going perfectly. Everything's going fine. And at the same time, uh, we're going to see in Genesis, like I said, that Israel's going through all this hardship, famine, famine, family strife. Uh, they're going to be slaves and all this kind of stuff. So here's the application that you and I should take from this genealogy of Esau, uh, which probably Probably doesn't get preached a whole lot. Um, from a worldly standpoint, Esau has everything you could possibly ask for. Life is going perfectly. The nation's growing and prospering. And Israel, God's people, are headed towards suffering that you and I can't even imagine. Uh, but the Israelites have one thing that the Edomites don't have. They have the promise of God. This has been the focus of Genesis since the very beginning of the book. The promise of God. The promised seed. The question for you and I today is simple. Who would you rather be? Now, I know that they... You know, I know you know what the right answer is. You know what the more spiritual answer is. Of course, we would rather be God's people. We would rather have the promise. But but let's not romanticize it. I mean, take a moment and honestly assess the situation and ask yourself, which would you rather have? Would you rather have peace, prosperity, victory, growth, and everything you could possibly ask for in this life, but without the delivering promise of God? Or would you rather have the promise of God on your life, knowing that this meant you would suffer greatly, that you would experience pains and hurts in this life that others can't imagine? Which would you rather have? It's, it's not really, it's not just an academic question either. This is, this is real life. And it's something that God's people have always struggled with. Let me read you Psalm 73 verses 3 through 14. And hear the, hear the suffering and the, the heart of the psalmist in, in Psalm 73. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no power. 
pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They're satisfied is what that means. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. You see, the psalmist is talking about exactly what we're seeing here. Israel is suffering, is going to continue to suffer. In fact, is going to go into 400 years of slavery while the Edomites are doing great, doing just fine. They, from a worldly perspective, they're doing a whole lot better than Israel is. They uh, really don't seem to have any troubles at all. And here you have in Psalm 73, the psalmist crying out, why is this so? And then Psalm 94 verse 3 says, O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? Uh, but you see, at the same time, you also have Psalm 37 that says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. I would submit to you that that Esau and his nation only have the appearance of of prosperity and abundance. Yes, he, you know, he has gained the whole world, it looks like. I mean, it looks like nothing is standing his way at all. But Esau does not have the promise of God. Esau despised his birthright and could care less about his family's spiritual heritage. And, and therefore, there came a day when Esau died and all his prosperity and his good life came to nothing. There came a day when the Edomites themselves fell under the judgment of God and we're destroyed. I mean, have you ever met an Edomite? Uh, yeah, I didn't think so. So you and I need to understand something from this. It is it's something that Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 26. He said, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? I don't want to suffer any more than you do. I don't want to be without. I don't want to be persecuted or disciplined. I don't want to be in poverty. But we we can't give up our trust in God's promise. From an eternal perspective, really, that's all you have. All this is going to fade away. As a, as a hospital chaplain, I have had the honor of being at the bedside of, of many, many dying people. Uh, I've never heard anyone say, well, at least I had lots of money, or at least I, I built a successful business. I've never heard anyone take comfort in the fact that they once won a championship game or that they, you know, prospered throughout their whole life. Uh, in fact, I have seen many people who had done these things just seize up in absolute terror as, as death came for them. But I've also seen many people who, who never did anything close to these things. People who lived with, I don't know, terminal illnesses for, for years before they died. Uh, they were unable to do the simplest things of life that you and I take for granted. I've seen these people rejoice in their final hours because they had the one thing that 
Esau lacked. They trusted in the promise of God. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? That's really the one thing that we have is the promise of God on our life. And that promise is in Christ that all the things that are wrong with this world, the curse uh, and the suffering and the pain and death itself will be wiped away. That is the promise that we have through Jesus Christ.